This message was presented at the DYC 2013 conference, Before Man and Angels, in Orlando, Florida. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.dycweb.org. Session 3, Repopulating Heaven, is what I have on there. Now, I believe this seminar was titled The the If in Life, if I'm not mistaken. It's a good title, but this is a better title. So I just want to switch that out, that's fine, Repopulating Heaven. Um, Honestly, the title I wanted to go with was uh, Life in Satan's Old House, but maybe that's a little too confusing, too on the nose. But um, Repopulating Heaven, session number three, and just before we have prayer, before we launch into it, let me do a quick review of one and two. And again, this is not exhaustive, this is a quick 30,000-foot survey of what we covered in the morning sessions. Basically, uh, Matthew chapter 13 is the parable that Jesus told that speaks directly to the great controversy. Not that other parables don't, but specifically to the entire spectrum of how did evil originate, where did sin begin, how will it end, and what's God's awareness and process of handling it. And uh, inside the parable, it was revealed that, number one, God takes no responsibility for the existence of evil. He says, an enemy has done this. I didn't do it, basically. But now that it has begun, we need to let it run its course. Don't go pluck up. Don't go take up the tares or the weeds. We have to let both grow together until the harvest. And then at the time of the harvest, he'll say to the reapers, go and gather all that offends out of of my field. And so, of course, the reapers are the angels. The harvest is the end of the world. So there is a time coming when God will, will separate and destroy the wickedness. But now the issue is you have to let them grow together. And the reason he gave inside the parable, Matthew chapter 13, for this process instead of an event, why not just take care of it in a moment, is because you can't take care of it in a moment. The nature of the problem itself requires time and maturity and demonstration. Okay? The nature of the problem requires this solution. It's not just one of several solutions, it's the only one. He says, let them grow together. In fact, the reason he allows the tares to grow with the wheat is for the sake of the wheat. He says, lest while you gather them up, you also uproot the wheat with them. So it's his concern for the wheat, which of course in the interpretation of the parable, Jesus says the the sons of the righteous one, or the righteous. It's for his concern for the redeemed that he allows wickedness to continue for a season, for a time. Okay? Now, the reapers of the angels, they're the ones who would distinguish between which ones go to the burn and which ones go to the barn. And if they did too early, they might get it wrong. They need a time to see the whole thing play out. And then at the time of harvest, you can say, all right, go gather mine for, this, for the barn and go gather the other ones for the burn, bundle them together and throw them in the fire. So there is a process and it goes back to the great, uh, those great passages in Isaiah and Ezekiel 28 that the reason Satan was simply cast out instead of being blotted out of existence was so that, according to Scripture, Others might see him. Those who knew him would gaze at him and see him for what he was because Christ can see inside, but we can only see the outside. Created beings can't look in on the heart, but God can. So what God knew all along and why he kicked him out physically, he had to give him time to produce it externally so that others could see too. And in stage two, by the way, stage one, he was kicked physically out of the courts of heaven. Step two, stage two in casting out the devil, was the removal of him from the sympathies of heavenly beings. Mrs. White makes this patently clear that did not happen until the cross. 4,000 years after the fall, there was still some level of sympathy for Satan, even in the unfallen beings. Okay? But when they saw Jesus on the cross, in one event, you had the complete revelation of the righteousness and character of God, and at the same time, the complete revelation of the wickedness and vileness of Satan and his character. Christ would give everything, including the life of God himself, if it were possible, to save others for others. Where Satan, on the other hand, would take everything, including the life of God itself, if it were possible, to suit his own ends. And at the cross of Calvary, and Mrs. White makes this patently clear, it was not just for the fallen, but also for the unfallen, that Jesus demonstrated his love, because this was the first time in all of the universe's history when the claims of Christ and the claims of Satan were made manifest and people could see for themselves the contrasting character between Christ and his adversary. And in that moment, people made their final decision. Ah, aha. Now, they weren't 
going to be going over. The, they were loyal to the Lord, but they had questions. That's the title of the seminars, Questions Angels Ask, and more questions angels ask. So steps three and four, of course, the question is, why should any of his followers be allowed to live? And we went through all this exhaustively, and of course, at the final analysis, at the final step four, at the end of the millennium, every being who the Lord ever created, sentient created intelligences, fallen or otherwise, everyone will have an opportunity to see for themselves the entire great controversy, the entire plan of redemption, everything Christ has done contrasted with the character of the one they have followed and the character they have personally developed by following him, and see that even if the Lord let them in, they wouldn't want it. Okay? Every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Very quickly, that was steps one and two, and I see the people are coming in, so I'll remind you, if you were here for the morning seminars, we did run out of notes, but those notes have been available, so they will be available at the, at the desk at the end of the time. Um, other than that, you should have a session three put in your hand right now, and that's what we're about to launch into. We're going to be looking now at, you know, step one happened in the courts of heaven, you know, probably 6,000 plus years ago now. 2,000 years ago, you had step two. And at the end of the thousand years, way off in the future, the millennium will have come to a conclusion. We'll have step four. We're living in stage three. Our life is stage three. Our life is now that Jesus Christ has revealed who he really is and has given us the, the power of salvation that Paul says the gospel is. What are we going to do with that? What will our choice be? That's what we're going to pick up today and this afternoon. So, uh, before we get started with that, we'll just briefly bow our heads for the word of prayer and then we're going to go off to the races again. So let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, thank you, thank you so much for this opportunity, for this time that you've carved out, this precious little moment in time. Please be with us now as we study your word. Send the same Holy Spirit who wrote it through those great men of old to now write it in our hearts. Help us to understand it and more than just intellectually grasping it. Lord, help us to have spiritual applications so that we may live the truth as it is in Jesus. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. More than merely the destruction. Of course, the rest of the mission. If you have your notes, we're going to start right here, and this is going to be our outline. Luke chapter 19 and verse 10. Luke chapter 19, verse 10. Jesus says, well, you know, I tell you what, let's start with 1 John chapter 3 and verse 8. Let's start there. That's not in your notes, but it is in your Bible. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 8. We ended on this passage towards the end of the last seminar. We're going to dovetail into it right now. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 8. Just so you know, there's some, I see some seats are available here. I don't know if we can crowd in and let people have them, but there are people in the back looking for seats, and we don't want to, we want to make it. Yeah, if we could scooch together, if that's at all possible, and make the end available or make sure that they're accessible for those coming in. Thank you. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 8. He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. And notice this statement. For this purpose, and notice the beginning of sin was before the beginning of us, right? Sin started in the courts of heaven, in the heart of Lucifer, not with the creation week of this earth. Okay, so this is talking about before us, and notice it says, and it is for this purpose the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. So notice that Jesus coming to the earth, becoming a human, going through his ministry, life and death, all of that he did, had primarily the first step. Now, of course, it does involve saving us. So that's the very next thing we're getting to. But it had a universal application. It was for something that started before us. Okay? But it does include us. Thus we go to Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19, Jesus makes this very simple declaration, which is good news to all of us. He says, For the Son of Man has come, for what purpose? To seek and to save that which was lost. If only destroying Satan was the entirety of God's plan, if merely destroying Satan, I believe it could have happened at the cross. Jesus revealed his cards, and so by doing, revealed Satan's cards. Every, everything was clear. Now the heavenly universe could say, all right, now we understand why our old friend Lucifer needs to be ended. We consent to your plan. We get it. 
But of course, in my sanctified imagination, I believe the Lord turned around to him and was like, good. It took you 4,000 years to get on board, but good. Okay. Now, what I want to do is bring some of them, his followers, right back here. And they're like, slow down. We just went through this. If you bring them here, how will that have solved anything? Won't we just go through it all over again? Okay, so this is the issue right now. All of us have a problem. I, I don't doubt if, if Gabriel heard that I'm going to be coming and living in heaven in the mansion next door to him, he's going to say, wait, 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 wait. Now again, we trust you, Lord. We believe that you're right, but we need to see evidence that this is wisdom, that this plan makes sense. How is this possible? Okay, so what we're going to basically do here is go through what God's plan is for us as we prepare to live there. Are we making sense so far? Okay, so let's just start with our problem. Let's go to Isaiah chapter 59. Again, we're going to go through several passages here that are likely very familiar to you. I hope they are. Isaiah chapter 59, verses 1 and 2. What is our big problem? It says here, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor his ear heavy that it cannot hear, but your, what? Iniquities, or your sins, have separated you from your God. There is a separation between us and God, and it's not that God has turned away, but we turned away from Him. Right? Your iniquities have separated you. You're the cause of the problem. He's like, I didn't do it, but you guys are choosing this, right? And your sins have hidden His face from you so that He will not hear. This is the issue. Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, over in the New Testament, picking up on the same theme. Verse 12, the Apostle Paul picking up on the same idea. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men, why? Because all did what? Sinned. That's our big problem. Our big separation between us and God is sin. Now, this probably is not you know, really earth-shaking material for you here, but I want you to see it straight from Scripture. Still there in Romans, go back to chapter 3. Verses 2 and 3. Again, he uses the same three-letter word, A-L-L, all, to describe our predicament. Romans 3, verse 23. For all have what? Sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, we'll take time in a minute to uh, outline what that actually means, but I'll just tell you that any time in Scripture that they're talking about glory, it's... It, an equivalent with character. Glory is an equivalent with character, okay? And we fall short of that character of God, the glory of God. Back to the book of Isaiah really quickly. Isaiah chapter 64. In verse 6, this is a critical passage. It seems to be like, why are we going here? It says the same thing Paul says, but let's be clear about the depths of our problem. Isaiah 64, verse 6. We are all like an unclean thing. And notice this, and all our, now does it say iniquity? All of our sin, all of our transgression, is that what the scripture says? No. All of our, what is that word? Righteousnesses are like filthy rags. So it's not even like our badness is bad, that all of our goodness is bad, if you will. Everything that we do to try to be righteous falls short of the glory of God. All have sinned. We have two big problems. And even if I were to stop, we still have a big problem. Let's say that I overcame right now perfectly. Boom, good. I've still got this whole track record where I've fallen short. Right? All have sinned. This is our problem. We've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. Thus, Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. Very clearly, 
What's the prognosis for people in our condition? For the wages of sin is what? Death. Friends, we are all living under a death sentence because of our sin. Because the wages of sin is death and every one of us has sinned. That's the situation we find ourselves. But I praise the Lord that that doesn't end with a period right there. Right? Comma, but the, and notice it's not the wages of God. It's the what? The gift of God. We've earned death, but the gift is given is eternal life. Where is that life found? In Jesus Christ, our Lord. Notice again, the wages of sin. A wage is something you do to earn. All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all of us, therefore, have earned the wages of sin, which is death. But, in contrast to that, the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Which sounds very, very nice, but let's think about it from the global perspective. Let's think about it outside of ourselves. Go to the book of Zechariah. Let me try to use the scripture to illustrate this point. Zechariah, chapter 3. The prophet is shown a vision of the high priest standing before the Lord. Joshua, the high priest, is standing there before the Lord in this vision. And of course, the high priest, as you know, as you're finding Zechariah chapter 3, the high priest is the personification in the, in the economy of Israel, in the Hebrew thinking, of the most righteous you can be. I mean, he's the representative of the people before God, right? He's supposed to intercede, if you will, for them. And here it is, the high priest is standing before the angel of the Lord, and it says in verse 1, Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to oppose him. My version says oppose him. Some of your versions probably use another word. Accuse him, right? He's standing in opposition to, accusing Joshua the high priest. Now, three guesses in the first two don't count. What do you think he's accusing Joshua of? Sin. Let me ask you a question. Is Satan wrong? No. He's like, no, 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 wait, 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 wait. He's not righteous. He has sinned. I was there. I led him into temptation. <laughs> right? I know sin when I see it. I'm the father of it, right? He sinned. And notice he's taking this argument to the Father, to the, to the angel of the Lord, to God himself, saying, aha, now, 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 what are you going to do? Your high priest, Mr. Righteous over here, has sinned and fallen short. And your law says the wages of sin is death. Go ahead, do your thing. He's trying to put Christ in a predicament here. Which, by the way, didn't you see that same spirit come out in the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes and the teachers of the law? Aha, but this says and this says and trying to... Same When Jesus said it, unleashed on them, well, I don't want to say unleashed on them, but spoke very plainly to them. In John chapter 8, you are of the father, your father, the devil, for the desires of your father you want to do. They share the same spirit, the same character. Their works manifest an inward... Mm. So it goes on. And look at the Lord's answer. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Notice carefully what he does and he doesn't say. He does not say, No, he's not. He's not a sinner. He's fine. Has no problem saying, Yes, he is. I know but I'm plucking him from the fire. Okay? Now, Joshua was, filth, was dressed in what kind of clothing? Filthy clothes. What did Isaiah already tell us these filthy garments represent? Not just our transgression, but our righteousnesses, right? This is the best we've got to offer, and it's still filth compared to the character of Christ. Now, Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes and was standing before the angel. Then he answered and spoke to those who stood before him, saying, Take away the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, See, I have removed your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with rich robes. There's a great exchange. 
Christ says, I'm going to take away this robe of filthiness, which is your iniquity, which is your sin. This is an analogy, a metaphor for sin. And in his place, I will give to you a robe of righteousness. Okay? And again, from our perspective, we're like, praise the Lord, that's great, but Satan's still standing there accusing him. He, and I can imagine, he's like, hey, hey, now wait a minute. What are you going to do with those clothes? And if you can just take off clothes and give everybody a fresh start, hey, take mine too. What does he do with those sins, which those clothings represent, that iniquity, that guilt? Does he just leave them clumped on the floor? What do we do with this? Let's continue on to see what Scripture says. Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah chapter 53. What does he do with that robe of unrighteousness, if you will? Isaiah chapter 53. He doesn't leave it clumped on the floor like some you know, careless teenager or something. Isaiah chapter 53. Verse 4. Speaking of Jesus Christ, prophesying what he would do with his ministry coming here. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our, what? Transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. And notice this. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we, tell me this doesn't sound like Isaiah and Romans, all we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Same exact language as Zechariah chapter 3, that robe, those filthy garments, he doesn't lay it on the floor. He lays it on Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ stands in the place. He says, I will live the life they have failed to live, and I'll die the death they have earned to die. And the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. Go to the New Testament, 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians, chapter 5. Second Corinthians chapter 5. Go to verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. So from our perspective, when Christ takes on our old stuff, we get a new start. But where did our old stuff go? Look down in verse 21. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin, what? For us. Why? That we might become the righteousness of God in him. The great exchange. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all, made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, so that in exchange we can live out, be the righteousness of God in him. It's a powerful thought. So every one of us, basically, if you see the, the notes here, we have two problems. Number one is our past. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All of us have transgressed. Everyone has turned his own way. And the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. The way that we get out of the penalty of our past is he lays it on Jesus Christ. And to us, we're like, praise the Lord, I get a clean start. I'm a fresh new creature. He, my past is forgiven. I am released. I have liberty in Jesus Christ. That is fantastic. And I hope that you actually live in that joy. But from the angel's perspective, from heaven's perspective, they're like, fantastic, that's great, and all. Right? But you still want to bring them here. 
and merely calling them, reckoning them as righteous, what guarantee does that give us that they won't just turn around and do it all again? So we have two problems. We have our past that we all come loaded down with, right? All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And in the cross of Christ, our iniquity was laid on Him and He died the death we have earned. He offers us pardon for our past. Praise the Lord. But friends, let me tell you something. The cross of Christ is more than just pardon. Not just pardon for the past, but it's also power for the future. Okay? Too many Gospels are offering a 50% off sale. Right? I don't want half Jesus. I want all Jesus. See what I'm saying? So we're going to turn our attention. That's the concern of the angels. Because again, their question is no longer, why should Satan die? They get that. They're fine with that. The question is, why in the world would you let any of his followers continue to live? Why would you bring them here? Well, let's take a look at that. Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to start with verse 7. Again, this is another Pauline sentence, so be patient. Speaking of Jesus Christ. In him, and you know what, we're just going to start with verse 3. <laughs> You start reading the context, oh, you got to get that, you got to get that too, but let's just start with verse 3, okay? Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. Remember, when was the Lamb slain, by the way? From the foundation of the world. This plan of redemption has been from the foundation of the world. He didn't think it up once sin entered. God was prepared for this, right? And apparently in that preparation, our final destiny has already been, God has said, this is, what this is what the ideal we're shooting for is. This is our object. This is our aim. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be what? Holy and without blame before him in love having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the good pleasure of His will, to the praise and glory of His grace, by which He made us accepted. How are we accepted? In the Beloved. Our only access is through Jesus Christ. Verse 7. Speaking of Jesus still. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace, which he, made known, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of His will according to His good pleasure which He purposed in Himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times He might gather together in one all things in Christ." both which are in heaven and which are on earth in Him. Okay? So the goal of the Gospel is the reconciliation. We've looked at a couple previous passages in the earlier sessions. Is the reconciliation of heaven and earth. So you don't just have the heavenly people and then the earthly people have their whole... No, 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 no. There should be free reciprocity going back and forth. A one unit whole. One in Christ. That's the ultimate aim of the gospel, is the restoration of all things, not just the redemption of fallen things. He wants the whole universe to be of one harmony, one accord, all things in Christ. It's a powerful thought, which again, to us, sounds great. Yay, we get access to heaven, but from their perspective, it's like, slow down, you're going to give them access to heaven? You see what I'm saying? From our perspective, it's like, oh, we'll take it all, and they're like, slow down, they'll come up here and take it all. You know, you don't, you got to think this through, right? Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, starting with verse 19. 
We saw this one previous, but notice how these go together. This seems to be a theme of Paul. Colossians 1 and verse 19. For it pleased the Father that in Him, and of course Him is capital H, we're speaking of Jesus Christ, all the fullness should dwell. And by Him, so know that Christ is the agency of whatever He's about to accomplish, right? By Him to reconcile, what's that next little word? All things to Himself, by Him, it's interesting, he starts the sentence by him, and in the middle of the sentence, by him, don't ever think that you're going to get this way without him. And it's only through Jesus that we have this access. All things to himself by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. It is the cross that brings peace both on earth and in heaven, and the ultimate aim is the reconciliation of heaven and earth. Please turn to John chapter 4. I'm sorry, 14. I'm sorry, 14. Jesus speaks about bringing these creatures to live with him in heaven. Chapter 14, verse 1. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Now notice this. In my Father's house will be many mansions. Is that what it says? Are many mansions. It, it, in my humble reading, it seems to imply that there's vacancies. Right? In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. Right? Because that's the other guy who lies. I tell the truth. I go to prepare a place for you. To give us access to that place. Perhaps even to build more. I, I would love to think that the, the number who's going to return is greater than the number who left. That'd be nice. I hope so. Okay. I go to prepare a place for you. I will come, and if I go, I'm sorry, verse 3, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. This is the great promise, and we love this promise. I love this promise. I hope that you do too, that Jesus is definitively from his own mouth said he's coming back, that there is a place prepared, and we can have access to heaven through him. That's wonderful. But again, let's think about it from the other perspective. Is this such a good idea for those people who've already witnessed the war break out in heaven and Michael and his angels fight against the dragon and his angels? The people who knew Lucifer. I mean, it doesn't take that much of a stretch to believe that Lucifer and Gabriel were friends. Right? And we don't know how long. But it's also not too much of a stretch to think that he'd been there for quite a while. He was the right-hand man of God, the covering cherub, right? For so I ordained you. Ezekiel tells us that God had set him up as this universal influence. And they watch. If you, if you read in, in Patriarchs and Prophets in those early chapters, uh, the story of redemption, you read all of these passages where she describes, Mrs. White describes the, the breaking out of this war and the the principles at stake and the campaigning that was going back and forth. They were pleading with them. And how it must have just ripped heaven to shreds when a third of the angel host. Of course there's mansions there. By the way, some, I find interesting quotes. They're here in your notes. Uh, SDA Babel Commentary, Volume 1, page 1082. God created man for his own glory, that after test and trial, the human family might become one with the heavenly family. Okay, that was the original. Ten. Notice this. It was God's purpose to repopulate heaven with the human family. Think about that. 
Review and Herald, May 29, 1900. The vacancies made in heaven by the fall of Satan and his angels will be filled by the redeemed of the Lord. I mean, is it possible that we could live in Satan's old house? I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to get into fanciful speculation, you know? <laughs> Maybe they had that one torn down, you know, I don't know. But, but to think about it, the vacancies, and I don't mean just in the housing market, you understand. I'm talking about the position, the, 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 the population itself of the heavenly universe, God intends us to refill. So what guarantee to the two-thirds who remain to have that the new one-third isn't going to mess it up again? I mean, can we at least concede that that's a legitimate concern on their part? Especially as they look around. <laughs> from our perspective, this promise is good news, but from the angel's perspective, wait a minute now. Christ's work involves both his preparing heaven for us and preparing us for heaven. Okay? The work of Christ is not just to shed his blood so to get us in and then go build us a mansion so we can go inhabit. Slow down. Yes, while he's preparing heaven for us, we're also supposed to allow him to prepare, prepare us for heaven. It's a greater concept. It's a greater concept. Nahum, chapter 1 and verse 9. Perhaps not a, a book that we're familiar with too often, but we visit too, too many times. But chapter 1 and verse 9, I believe, again in my humble opinion, contains the biggest promise in all the Bible. The biggest promise. And there are a lot of great promises in the Bible. A lot of great ones. So I'm not, this is not putting down other ones, but I'm just saying, look at what it says in Nahum 1, chapter 1, and verse 9, and we're going to wrestle with the ramifications of this statement, okay? What do you conspire against the Lord? He will make an utter end of it. Affliction will not rise up a second time. Now, I think that's great news. But let's think about it logically. And again, from our perspective, it's happy news. Yay! But how is it possible that a God who allows his creatures to choose for themselves can guarantee that sin will never occur again? How is it possible for that statement to be true? Is God going to take away our power of choice? Was it the fact that we have choice, is that the fault in the great controversy? Is that the cause of sin? No. Of course not. It's what we chose to do with it, right? Of course, he started it, but we followed right in line when presented with the option, let's be honest. And now each one of us partaken of that decision. Each one of us is trained and through inherited and cultivated tendencies, we like the disobedience route more than the obedience route in our natural selves. Yes? So given that material, how can the God of the universe make that big of a promise? That no one will ever rebel again. I believe that the only way he can make that guarantee and leave intact that precious, beautiful gift of choice, that freedom of conscience, liberty, to sin if we so chose, the only way he can do that is to allow the process to take its course and let everyone in the universe, righteous and unrighteous, see all that's at stake and choose for themselves whom they will serve. And only by recreating in us 
the character of Christ? Will we guarantee that we'll only be like Christ from eternity on? Does that make sense? Okay. Friends, we must, I plead with you, I beg of you, I beseech of you, please disabuse your mind of any idea that salvation is a transaction to get you into heaven. Friends, what God has in store is a transformation that will fit you into heaven. Do you see the difference? Thus, our hope of salvation is not in a transaction, a ticket, but it's in the Savior Himself, in a living, breathing, daily, conscious walk with Him, empowered by His Spirit to choose the right though the heavens fall. We must, we must view, I believe biblically so, that salvation is not merely a transaction to get you in, but a transformation God intends to fit you in. Great Controversy, page 504. The whole universe will have become witness to the nature and results of sin. And its utter extermination, which in the beginning would have brought fear to angels and dishonor to God. By, by the way, let's, I'm going to finish this sentence. We're going to come back and ponder this one a little. We're going to scratch our heads for just a second, okay? Again, and its utter extermination, which in the beginning would have brought fear to angels and dishonor to God, will now vindicate his love and establish his honor before the universe of beings who delight to do his will and in whose heart is his law. Notice the exact same action, if it was done too early, would have ruined the whole thing. Remember we talked about that if you were here in session one or two, how Christ could see through the hearts and intents of men, and, and if he were to just bring Lucifer forward without any outward manifestation of the evil that was in his heart, and just killed him on the spot, and then like, all right, let's continue singing, praise God from... Yeah. <laughs> Someday, by the way, the breath of life will leave Satan, and he will finally, fully, completely, and permanently be dead. And at that time, everybody's going to be whew, good. But if you do the exact same action at the beginning, everybody's going to say, uh-uh, no, no, that's no good. And it's not the action that has changed but it's our understanding of that action that has changed. Do you see the difference? Right? Friends, I don't know how to say it in any plainer words. It's of utmost significance what you think about God. Right? He cares what you think. Even if you're lost, He cares what you think. If you're saying, that's crazy, go back and listen to session two. Okay. <laughs> But I'm telling you, he wants every created being to see the full extent, everything that's uncover every rock, ask every question. And at the end, you choose. You choose. Again, never will evil again be manifest. Says, and I believe this is the only occasion in the, in the great index of all of her writings where you, she directly quotes Nahum chapter 1 and verse 9. Never again will evil be manifest, says the word of God, affliction shall not rise up the second time. The law of God, which Satan has reproached as a yoke of bondage, will be honored as the law of liberty. Same law, two different perspectives on it, right? A tested, oh, think about this. I'm going to read it slowly. <laughs> A tested and proved creation will never again be turned from allegiance to him whose character has been fully manifested before them as fathomless love and infinite wisdom. Why will they never turn away again? Because they've gone through the process, been tested and proved, and they have seen the glory of God. They've seen the character of their Savior and they will never, ever want 
to go that way again. It isn't because the Lord removes the opportunity to rebel. You can step off the reservation at any time, but he guarantees that when it's all said and done, no one will ever want to do that again. They've seen it start, they've seen it end, and they want no part of it. In the same way that those heavenly beings weren't listening to Satan's arguments anymore after the cross, I don't care what argument we come up with, we saw what you did to Jesus. You're done. We're not listening anymore. A tested and proved creation will never again be turned from allegiance to him whose character has been fully manifested before them as fathomless love and infinite wisdom. That's how Nahum chapter 1 and verse 9 can be made a guarantee because God's going to reveal his righteousness in the person of Jesus Christ and looking to him we live. Now let's go to the Old Testament, the book of Deuteronomy. I believe this before men and angels theme. I, I tell you what, when they were announced last year, the theme was before men and angels and this conference was going to be about the great controversy. I was in my seat in the auditorium getting twitchy. I was just excited. I was like, yes, 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 yes. And, and, and I find this particular, this is not just a few pieces and parts of Scripture. This, this theme is replete throughout the Scriptures. And if you go back to Deuteronomy, I, I take you back here because I, I find this fascinating. Deuteronomy chapter 4, and starting with verse 5. This was to Israel, God's people who he chose to represent him on the earth. Correct? Okay. Now, this instruction was given. Chapter 4, starting with verse 5. Through his mouthpiece, a spokesman, his prophet Moses, Surely I have taught you statutes and judgments, just as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should act according to them in the land which you go to possess. Therefore, now it's interesting, He's given you these statutes specifically so that you'll obey them when you get in the land. Now, of course, you're supposed to obey them all throughout your life, right? But more than just you personally obeying them, you're going to be a representative of God in that place you're going to live. Okay, now watch with this. Therefore, be careful to observe them, for this is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who will hear of these statues and say, surely this great nation is wise and understanding people. Notice what the Lord is saying. I'm giving you my law. And of course, the law of God is merely a transcript of the character of God. Right? He said, so you will now be representing me, not just on paper, but in person. They're going to meet you and through you, hopefully a piece of me. So be careful. As soon as my sons are old enough to understand, I'm going to tell them about our family name, and you're going to carry that around with you. So you're carrying me when you go to the playground. Be careful. I'm fragile. Right? <laughs> that name, right? And we're not carrying around just an earthly name or a family lineage. We're talking about the character of the God of the universe. He says, be careful. You're representing me now. They're going to look at you, and they're going to get a picture of me, so make sure you're a clear painter. Right? Now, Again, it was for the nations they were going to be around. A fascinating little reference. Testimonies for the Church, Volume 6, page 13. Speaking of this passage in Deuteronomy, she writes, Even these words fail of reaching the greatness and the glory of God's purpose to be accomplished through His people. Not to this world only, but to the universe are we to make manifest the principles of his kingdom. Okay? So again, if you remember Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 10, to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. He wants to teach heavenly beings about some of his wisdom by looking at his people on the earth. And that's what Israel was supposed to do, was to represent the Father, to represent the character of the God they claim to serve. And he says, now you be careful. They're going to look at you, and they're going to hear your claim, and they're going to compare that, that to what you actually do. So be careful. 
you're representing me. And not just to those other nations, the Edomites, the Amalekites, and all the different Ammonites, and the Ites, and the Ites, and the Ites, right? But to the Gabrielites, if you can, you know. <laughs> to those others. The whole universe is watching. So be careful. We've looked at those other passages before, and we need to keep going, but... Oh, wow, we really need to keep going. This is horrible. <laughs> Hebrews chapter 11. We're going to go real fast now. <laughs> Hebrews chapter 11. And if we need to put a pin in it, we can just segue it into the second one and make you have to stay for that one. Uh, Hebrews chapter 11. The faith chapter. Okay. Everything is by faith, and then people did. By faith, people did. By faith. And then notice what it says in verse 13. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off. Right? So these people lived a normal life and died. They were just faithful throughout their lives. And way out on the horizon, way past what they could physically see, they saw these promises of God. But having seen them afar off, were assured of them. Notice this. So they, they were confident and they were assured of them. They personally embraced them and confessed that they were what? Strangers and pilgrims where? On the earth. They're looking at this great reconciliation promise of God and they kept their eye focused on that. They were assured of it, they embraced it, and they lived a life that confessed they don't belong here. Right? For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And if truly they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, which might lead you to, you know, Lot's wife, right? Physically transporting, but spiritually she was still in the city. So that pillar of salt thing was just a confirmation of what was in there all along, right? And if truly they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have opportunity to return. But the people who go to the heavenly country, the promise has been made, they're not returning. Okay? But now they desire a better, that is a heavenly country. So they're in this world, but they're not, as Christ would say, of this world. They had their eye on a far horizon. That, that, that place over there, that's my home. And I love this. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. And notice this, sounds a lot like Jesus, for he has prepared a city or a place for them. Friends, I don't know about you, but in my motive for being obedient to God's law, I don't want to be just because I want to grit and bear it. I want it to be because I don't want God to be ashamed of me. I want him to look at me and say, I'm proud of you. Yeah, that victory that I won in Christ, you've taken that as your own. Praise the Lord. You know, I want Jesus to be, well done, good and faithful servant, you know. It's a testimony I want. Counsels to parents, teachers, and students, page 324. The power of a higher, purer, nobler life is our great need. The world is watching. Notice that she's going to go from the earthly to a much broader universal perspective. The world is watching to see what fruit is born by professed Christians. Mm. And by the way, listen to all the neo-atheists that are out there right now. They're saying, okay, here's the profession and here's how you live. Right? Everybody's watching. It has, and notice this, it has a right. They're not being judgmental. They're being judicious. They're inspecting the fruit. You, you claim that your root is tapped into Jesus Christ. Let's see some fruit of Christ's likeness come out. It has a right to look for self-denial and self-sacrifice. By the way, we're going to come back to those themes in a later message. But self-denial and self-sacrifice from those who believe advanced truth. It is watching, ready to criticize with keenness and severity our words and acts. Everyone who acts a part in the work of God is weighed in the scales of human discernment. Impressions favorable or unfavorable to the Bible religion are constantly being made on the minds of all with whom we have to do. So that's the earthly perspective. Now she shifts to heaven. And God and the angels are watching. 
God desires His people to show by their lives the advantage of Christianity over worldliness. Right? A proclamation of Christianity is not what the world is waiting. They're waiting to see it lived out in the life. Right? God desires, again, his people to show by their lives the advantage of Christianity over worldliness, to show that they are working on a high, holy plane. He longs, this is God, he longs to see them showing that the truth they have received has made them children of the heavenly king. He longs to make them channels through which he can pour his boundless love and mercy. Christ is waiting with longing desire for the manifestation of himself in his church. When the character of the Savior shall be perfectly reproduced in his people, then he will come to claim his own. It is the privilege of every Christian not only to look for but to hasten the coming of our Lord. Were all who profess his name bearing fruit to his glory, how quickly the whole world would be sown with the seed of the gospel. Quickly the last great harvest would be ripened and Christ would come. <sighs> Oftentimes we quote that from a different source, but I, I, I like it in that great controversy context of everyone watching. And what they're watching, they've already seen Christ demonstrate his character, right? Now they're waiting for those who claim to be Christ's to demonstrate that character too. Is what Christ offers us merely pardon for the past, or is the blood of Jesus still powerful for the future? Does he just make us good on paper, or can he actually transform us into his righteousness, into his glory in person? Mm. Which we can go into this harvest theme, but Matthew chapter 13, Mark chapter 4, Revelation chapter 14, all talk about this harvest, and you don't set a date on the calendar to harvest the grain, right? You don't, you don't set a time to say, okay, that's right, on October 13, that's when we harvest. Ready or not, here comes the thresher. That is ridiculous, right? What are you looking for? Ripe fruit. That's when you harvest is when it's ripe. Now, in our day and age, of course, they, they harvest like three months before it's ripe and it just sits on a shelf for a while, but that's, that's modern technology, you know? You know, I heard another, uh, an interesting thing. Uh, oranges have to, they, once you pick them, they don't ripen anymore. You have to let them sit on the tree. So all they do is watch the tree. <laughs> come on, come on, come on. You want to hit that sweet spot, right? And the moment you see it, got them. And all through the scripture, we have this concept of the harvest because the harvest is ripe. The harvest is ripe. The harvest is ripe. Page from Prophets, page 88. In the, midst of a world by its in the midst of a world by its iniquity doomed to destruction, Enoch lived a life of close communion with God that he was not permitted to fall under the power of death. The godly character of this prophet represents the state of holiness which must be attained by those who shall be redeemed from the earth. And that's from Revelation chapter 14, verse 3, that redeemed from the earth, and that's one of those harvest passages. We're going to redeem from the earth. Now, I know that there are plenty of people, myself was one of those who, I, I guess I really never thought about it, but if I were pressed to think about it, I would think, well, when are you going to actually have this character of Christ? Well, when Jesus comes again, right? I get changed. We'll all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. Does Scripture not say that? Yes. The, the, the difficulty, though, is what gets changed. Right? Over and over. Let's just look at a couple of these passages. I want to make sure you see this from Scripture. What gets changed, friends, is your body. You get a new body. Right? I mean, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Philippians chapter 3, Romans chapter 8, over and over and over, in a moment in twinkling eye, the redemption of our body. But we don't get a new character when Jesus comes again. And the reason is simple. It completely makes sense. It's totally logical. It's not arbitrary by God. It's the only way it can be. 
because the nature of a body versus the nature of a character. A body is just simply the dust of the ground, right? It's atoms, it's molecules, it's particles that God can rearrange and make an eyeball or an arm or a head of hair. I mean, he can make a new physical body, no problem. You know, I've always wondered that people are worried about like, what if I die in a fire? He made you from dust to start with. I don't understand. What is the conundrum, you know? It's like, I, I, I don't know. Anyway, that's just my take on it. No. A body can be given. It's a gift. He can form it, put it together. There you go, body. But a character cannot be given. A character can only be grown, right? Because a character is simply the end result of daily decisions. You've probably heard it. Every choice, you know, choices lead to habits, which lead to lifestyle, which if you continue on that, sets and forms your character, and your character determines your destiny, right? And, and I've, I've heard it talked about, and perhaps you have too, that God could make a spitting image of you. You could make someone that looks like you, sounds like you, walks like you, talks like you, even laughs like you. You could pass by your friends, your family, your husband, your wife could be fooled. But he would know. Because that's all just the physical. But the decisions that you make determine who you are. The decisions you make determine the character that you're forming. And I know it sounds crazy, but not only God could make another you. Right? Because you have made you. Because he's got this beautiful power of choice given to everyone. You're either going to be conformed to his image or to the image of his enemy. But neither one, neither Christ nor Satan is allowed to make decisions for you. You choose for you. And friends, whoever you are now is the result of the decisions you've made. And praise the Lord, you're still alive to make new decisions. Amen. By the way, that's why the Bible says, choose you this day whom you will serve. It has nothing to do with because you might die. Which, I mean, quantitatively speaking, you know, in an actuarial set, perhaps you have a chance of dying, but it's not a probability. I mean, odds are we're going to leave this room and no one will have died. Please let that be the case, you know, right? Odds are. And in our experience, Jesus hasn't come yet. Now, I believe he's coming soon. And it might be this second. Nope, didn't happen. And it might be this next second. Nope, didn't happen yet. One of those seconds, by the way, he will. Okay, and we're living in very exciting times. That's not to downplay the... But long before the second coming was imminent, prophets were saying to the people, choose you this day. Why? Because today you form the person you're going to be tomorrow. And the next day. And the next day. And the next day. Character, friends, is formed. But a body can be given. Let me give you just a couple of statements and I'll let you go. I know the time is coming and people are leaving. When Christ shall come, our vile bodies are to be changed and made like his glorious body, but the vile character will not be made holy then. The transformation of character must take place before his coming. Our natures must be made pure and holy, must be pure and holy. We must have the mind of Christ that he may behold with pleasure his image reflected upon our souls. It's our high calling, page 278. Signs of the Times, July 31, 1893. If we, I love this statement, listen to it. Not that you weren't already, but you know what I'm saying. If we would see heaven, which hopefully is the goal, right? We must have heaven below. Listen to the structure of this next sentence. We must have a heaven to go to heaven in. You didn't catch it. We're going to say it slow. All right now. We must have a heaven to go to heaven in. A heavenly character must be ours so that when we get in, we'll actually fit in. Right? Salvation is much more than a transaction, friends. It's a transformation to fit us into the society 
of heaven. We've already run over our time. We'll pick up this at the next session, but let me ask you again. Has the presentation made sense? Okay, praise the Lord. That's good. Let's praise the Lord for that. We'll come back. We'll, came, we'll build on this theme some more, but before we go, let's quickly bow our heads for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for the opportunity to study your word, and Lord, thank you for the great honor, the humbling privilege, and the incredible, significant responsibility that comes when we take on the name of Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to never, never settle for a transaction mentality where we look to our salvation as our hope, but let's look to our Savior as our hope and have a living, breathing, daily walk with Him so that when people see us, they will see a glimpse of our Father in Heaven. Lord, to that end, keep us faithful and make us useful for You. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. We'll get started in just a few minutes. This message was recorded by Fountain View Productions for GYC. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire and equip young people to be vibrant, Bible-based, and Christ-centered Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, please visit us online at www.gycweb.org.